Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. Good to worship with you. I'm Father Morgan Reed, the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Um, Father Ryan misses you all. He's off uh, doing pulpit supply at another church this morning. So be praying for him as he preaches this morning on on Luke 16. Um, But I'm grateful to be here with you worshiping this morning. And let me just pray for us as we begin our time together in the book of Amos. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Almighty God, you pour out on all who desire it the spirit of grace and of supplication. Deliver us when we draw near to you from coldness of heart and wanderings of mind, that with steadfast thoughts and kindled affections, we may worship you in spirit and in truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Back in the years 54 to 68 of the Common Era, While some of the apostles were still alive, Rome had an emperor, who many of you have heard of, named Nero. And and Nero is known for all kinds of immorality. He's also known for being a completely ineffectual ruler. Um, And in 64 CE, so think about 30 years after the time of Christ, there was a great fire that came through and it swept through the city of Rome leaving about only four out of all of Rome's 14 districts untouched by the fire. Hundreds of people were killed. Thousands became homeless overnight. And it's said that during that fire, as the fires were burning, Nero took up the cloak of a musician and he played his instrument, dreaming of a better city that would arise from the ashes. The image of Nero playing music while the world burns beneath his feet is a lot like the book of Amos this morning in chapter 6. The book of Amos had been written back in the 8th century BCE, so think about 800 years before the time of Jesus. It was addressing uh, some issues that were happening in the northern kingdom of Israel. The kingdom had split by this point. Most of the Bible was written to the southern kingdom of Judah, but we have these glimpses of things that are happening in the north through books like Kings, books like Chronicles, and in the prophetic literature, specifically Hosea and Amos, we have these glimpses of the north. By the 720s, the northern kingdom would eventually come to be conquered by the Assyrians, and they would be scattered throughout a large geographic region, later on becoming what we know as the Samaritans. The southern kingdom was able to hold out for about another 200 years before the Babylonians would come and bring them into exile and would only leave a tiny remnant back in Jerusalem. But both, whether we're talking about the north or the south, God sent his messengers, the prophets, to warn of the judgment that was going to come. And so I think it's helpful to understand what's happening as we come into Amos' prophecy. He is... Uh, God's messenger, the prophet to the north. He's a prophet that's called by God. There's nothing special about him. In fact, when we read the book of Amos, he's called a herdsman. 
and a fig farmer from the town of Tekoa, which is about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. So God called him to the north, even though he's a southern man. And, and God called him from picking figs to go to the north, to proclaim truth to power in Samaria and in the religious center of Bethel. Amos already had something, also has something to say to the south, uh, which comes elsewhere in the book. We get little glimpses of that. And just by the fact that this book was edited as part of the Book of the Twelve Minor Prophets, um, what he says to the north also applies to the south. And so I think Amos also, because it has something to say to the South, also has something to say to the people of God today. And one of the things that comes through in this morning's passage is, is about the principle of restraint or the virtue of temperance. Um, it's this virtue that we cultivate to attune ourselves to the work of God and to the need of others. So if you have your Bibles uh, in front of you, you can open those if you'd like to. Amos. Chapter 6, you can follow along. Page 768, thank you. Um, so, it starts out this way. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. The notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calme and see. And from there go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath. Of the Philistines, are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. So, this is a woe oracle. Uh, Woe oracle begins with woe um, against the leaders who are the influencers of the people in the north. And a woe mimics. The sound that you'll hear at a funeral in, in ancient Israel. And so this is kind of like a funeral morning. In a real sense, there's a lamentation happening for actually what's about to take place in the land of Samaria. And so the leaders are kind of like Nero fiddling along while Rome burns. They're just sticking their heads in the sand. They're unhinged by their own restraints, their desires. They're giving themselves whatever they want and desire And people are looking up to them as examples of morality and ethics. And essentially what they're doing then is they're making a mess of what it means to live out God's call to justice, equity, and human flourishing and right worship. And so the leaders, what they did is they were relying on their political um, status and their status at being at the political center of what feels like an exceptional nation. And that's why Amos calls them the notable ones uh, who are of the first of the nations. It's sort of sarcastic. Um, You could call it being self-confident in Samaritan exceptionalism. So the influencers of this nation teach us the danger of of what it is to rely on our status uh, or our situational success as being some sort of token of God's favor. Everything seemed to be going right for them. They continued in sin, they continued in revelry and idolatry. And because their situation was very comfortable, it just kept reinforcing itself. They felt like they had no need for God's help. They had no need for restraint because everything was going fine. They must be in God's will. And so they lived in this pursuit of pleasure that was completely unrestrained, unhindered, uh, completely free. 
And as a result of that, they were inattentive to the welfare of the other people around them. But when we contrast that with Christian liberty, Christian freedom, Christian freedom always exercises some kind of temperament or temperance or restraint. Um, Jesus calls that dying to ourselves daily. The leaders that Amos addresses, they had their head in the sand while the world around them was just crumbling. Um, in pursuit of their own pleasure, they were setting other people up for failure. And so there's not only unbridled um, self-confidence, uh, but we also have gluttony in this passage. When we go to verses 4 through 7, the prophet says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest of oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go down into exile and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. And the fact that these individuals now have this system of self-confidence and assurance is actually keeping them from seeing the problems around them. The problem has become systemic. It's institutional. And so here we get a little bit of what the system of self-confidence looks like that's keeping them unaware of people around them. It says they're stretched out on really ornate couches. Um, they're eating the choicest of meats. They're fattened up from their inaction. And they're being entertained with the best of music. There's this cultic setting that's happening too. Uh, to what they're doing, especially when we talk about the bowls that are mentioned in verse six, because those bowls that are mentioned aren't typically ones that you would drink out of for any reason. They're meant for offerings when you read the Hebrew scriptures. And so the problem is not only that they're just gorging themselves um, and they've created a, a system of gluttony and self-satisfaction. The other problem is that they've taken the instruments that would otherwise be used for reverence and honor and worship, and they've offered it to the God of their stomachs. So the thing that might make them sick now is partying way too hard and being self-indulgent, but what should have made them sick is the state of Israel around them. They're not sober-minded. Uh, the prophet says that these who were the first uh, in this exceptional place would be the first to go into exile. And, and I think when we look at this passage, it tells us a lot about Christian community. Our gospel reading today, um, which Father Ryan's going to be preaching on over at Shepherd's Heart this morning, uh, it addresses a similar kind of injustice with the story of the rich man and of Lazarus. The nature of true freedom isn't if we uh, live out how we please without constraints. That's not the nature of true freedom, to live however we want without constraints. It's the freedom to give of ourselves uh, in love to God and to others. Similarly, you can look at the book of Philippians. Look at chapter 2 of Philippians where it says, uh, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in the Christian tradition, then, what that means is that uh, restraint or what we might call temperance is a virtue. It's one of the highest virtues because it is like Christ. Something we don't talk about a lot, um, but people do talk about fasting in the Christian tradition. And that's just one form of restraint. One of the fathers of the church that I like to read when it comes to talking about virtues and vices is, is a person named John Cassian, C-A-S-S-I-N. And he was writing about 300 years after the time of Jesus. And he says this, For the soul also has its foods, which are harmful, fattened on which, even without the super, superfluity of meats, it is involved in a downfall of wantonness. And so what he then does when he talks about harmful foods for the soul, he goes on to name slander, a burst of anger, envy, vainglory. Maybe some of these sound familiar. Lust in the wanderings of the heart. And then he says this, for the labor of the flesh, when joined to the contrition of the spirit, will produce a sacrifice that is most acceptable to God and a worthy shrine of holiness in the pure and undefiled inmost chambers of the heart. Read that last sentence again. The labor of the flesh, when joined with the contrition of the spirit, will produce a sacrifice that is most acceptable to God and a worthy shrine of holiness in the pure and undefiled inmost chambers of the heart. So labor of the flesh, which in his context, he was talking about fasting. And that doesn't just have to be food. That could be other things. And, and then so labor of the flesh and contrition of the spirit are the way to purity of heart and union with God, which are the goals. There's this nice discipleship principle that I find there. And the, and the principle is that if we want to change our hearts and minds, or if we want our hearts and minds to be changed, then sometimes we have to press on what our hands are doing. Um, you may have heard that analogy before. If we are the, the head, heart, and hands, sometimes we push on the mind to try and get the mind to change. But sometimes what we have to do to get the mind and the heart to change our affections and our thinking is to push on the things that our hands are doing. And early on, I'd, I'd made it a point as a disciple not to, um, as, or sorry, not as a, dis well, yes, as a disciple, but as a discipline by way of example, one of the things that I've tried to do is not to scroll on my phone uh, or check my email while we're eating as a family. And that's just a personal commitment that I have. And it, it's totally my individual right to sit there and scroll through my phone and to, to be engaged with it. And, and I would admit to you, there are probably ways that I am uh, un, unhealthily related uh, to my phone. Um, but in that one act of restraint, what I'm doing is I'm actually becoming more aware of the people around me and their needs and their, their loves and their affections just by that one act of restraint. I mean, how do we do this? How do we practice temperance in, in a culture and in a world where we're told constantly, no, you deserve it. You are entitled to it. Even if you have to go into debt for this, zero down, you are entitled to this thing. Um, we're hit with materialistic messages from every side that encourage um, gluttony and intemperance. And, and so I do think we need to go back to St. Paul's words um, about having the mind of Christ and then grow in our understanding of what Jesus set aside to bring us to God. To have that mindset is to see other people 
as the image of God. And, and it helps us to have compassion on the struggles that other people are going through. It helps us to in, invite us to consider the needs of others when we're going through the course of the day. Or even as we're thinking about how to make our calendar for the next week. Are we considering the needs of others around us? We don't want to stick our heads in the sand. Um, and I do think that some measure of fasting is helpful. And just as an aside... Within the Christian tradition, generally Wednesdays and Fridays have been set aside as uh, various levels of, of fasting days. And then Ash Wednesday and Good Friday are two sort of what we might call obligatory. I don't like that word, but uh, very special fasting days uh, in our calendar. And those are just places to exercise a little restraint. And for some, fasting from food may not be the best or the wisest thing for various reasons, health concerns. Um, and so all of these things have to be done reasonably and prayerfully. But there are places to exercise temperance in, in the flesh. And, and that's just part of cultivating this virtue. The point isn't rigor for rigor's sake, right? But it's to have a pure heart and to have an attentiveness to the, what God is doing in us and what God is doing in other people around us. It's an act of worship. Uh, and this is where our series comes, right? We have been talking about worship and formation. Restraint is an act of worship to withhold something from ourselves in order to attune ourselves more to the love of God and to the needs of others. And so the hope is that in exercising this muscle of restraint accompanied with a life of penitence and prayer, that it's teaching us to stave off those things that John Cassian mentioned, which are the harmful appetites of the soul. When desire for revenge uh, or anger start to creep up, we can recognize them as being unhealthy appetites. Uh, when Satan says, you know what, you're entitled to this, no matter who it hurts to get there. Uh, we don't have to listen to that. We don't want to be like those leaders in this passage who are so taken up by their own earthly appetites that we are just sticking our heads in the sand uh, while the world around us is burning. And so as we cultivate the mind of Christ, we push on the hands to change the heart and the mind. So that way we're not like the ineffective Nero who's fiddling while Rome is burning and dreaming about a better city that's going to come from the ashes. Um, we will grow in the love of God. Uh, that is to say, in the purity of heart and in union with God, in the ability to see the needs of others. And by doing this restraint or temperance, we'll begin to address those needs with the care and the compassion of God. Let me pray for us. Oh God, without whose beauty and goodness our souls are unfed, without whose truth our reason withers, consecrate our lives to your will, giving us such purity of heart, such depth of faith, and such steadfastness of purpose, that in time we may come to think your own thoughts after you. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen.